0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Imagine this scene. You're watching a trial in a San Francisco court. It's the 1880s. A black man from West Oakland is on trial for assault. According to the accuser, who's a white man, the black man pistol whipped him and said, I'll teach you who is the master. There are eyewitnesses, and this isn't the first time that the black man has been accused of beating a white man. This is a true story. What do you think happened next? Guilty or not guilty? The accused man was named William Shorey, and he was found not guilty. Shorey was also the captain of a whaling ship. In fact, he was the only African-American whaling captain in the history of the West Coast. According to one scholar, Dr. Timothy Lynch, Shorey attained, quote, a level of respect unheard of in Jim Crow America. And unrivaled in Victorian era California. So, why did his job put him above the law? Here's Kevin Dawson, a professor at UC Merced who studies maritime history and the African diaspora.
1: In the case of Shori, I mean, he clearly recognized that the courts were going to see him as a captain and not as a black man, that the courts didn't want to challenge captains. I mean, if they, if they, Convicted Shorey, they're setting a dangerous precedent for all
0: captains. The other scholar I mentioned earlier, Dr. Lynch, put it this way: quote, power and class mattered far more than race and ethnicity. That's correct, but it's also not that simple. When I started researching stories for this podcast last year, I dove into Oakland history and started reading everything I could get my hands on. When I stumbled across William Shorey, his story jumped out at me immediately. Not only was the only black whaling captain in Pacific Coast history from the East Bay, but his house still exists in West Oakland. All the articles about him called him by his nickname, Black Ahab, and described him as a larger-than-life hero who battled typhoons, married a brilliant, beautiful woman from a wealthy family, saved his crew from all kinds of disasters, and eventually became a pillar of Oakland's early African-American community. Here's Bieran Talati, the guy who owns Captain Shorey's house now.
1: You know, this would be a great Hollywood script with, you know, uh, Denzel Washington playing Captain Shorey.
0: And I think Bieran is right, but not as like a cheesy feel-good blockbuster. Denzel Washington's best characters have been complicated, aggressive, tragic. Denzel is one of the greatest actors of all time, because beneath his smooth veneer of dapper good looks, you can see a storm raging in his eyes.
1: Yeah, that's right, you better walk away. Go and walk away, because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down.
0: At first, I thought this episode was going to be kind of an inspiring adventure story. Shori was a brave man, even heroic in many ways but he was also far more complex than the plaque on his house makes him out to be. This story of how a young boy originally from Barbados emerged as one of the most powerful black men in California forces us to confront questions of assimilation and corruption, slavery and freedom, and even the very concept of liberation. But don't worry, if you want an adventure story too, there will be shipwrecks tropical romance, deadly whale hunts, and celebrity cameos, and blubber, hello blubber. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned.
1: Being part black, I was familiar with these ideas that black people can't swim, um, that it's a white sport. Um, or white activity, or at least unblack. And so, really, as an undergrad, I started seeing these accounts of slaves swimming and surfing and, and building canoes, um, being on the water. Um, and it really cut across kind of popular conceptions at the time. And so I kind of just got drawn into it. Um, and then I started looking at accounts of Africa as well and seeing that that Africans had this rich maritime history.
0: Again, that's the voice of maritime historian, Kevin Dawson. Remember that story from the beginning of this episode about how Captain Shorey's job sort of put him above the law? I was really curious about that because it seems like such a unique situation. Even today, America's legal system is really stacked against black men. So why was being a captain so special anyway? And if this was such a privileged position, How was a black man able to get this job back at a time when racial discrimination was pretty much the law of the land? It turns out that answering these questions requires a trip back to medieval Europe.
1: Beginning in the Middle Ages, Europeans largely stopped swimming for a number of different reasons. One is that they thought that just by immersing themselves in water, um, that that's what was causing diseases, um, that, that water would actually absorb into one's body and cause them to get sick. And that's why they would use um, leeches and bleed people because they felt that they needed to, to kind of drain that excess
0: fluid. Ugh, gross. Anyway, starting around the 15th century, the Renaissance sparked a boom in innovation and exploration. But this rapid growth in Europe's economy was fueled by something much uglier, the transatlantic slave trade. And since most white people couldn't swim, Slave traders sought out Africans who possessed these skills.
1: They began to import African um, underwater divers into the New World to actually dive for pearls, to salvage shipwrecks, dive for sponges, for coral, um, for things like that. Um, and so these skills became really prized, and really only a few slaves ever kind of mastered these skills. A relatively small number of slaves, I should say. And so this gave them leverage for to, to extract privilege from their owners.
0: Slave owners wanted these underwater treasures so bad that they were willing to give anything, and slaves knew how to use this to their advantage.
1: Many of them end up being treated more or less like they're free. Um, received wages, oftentimes were able to buy their freedom, their family members freedom, and then once free oftentimes able to to, to establish themselves as um, pearl divers or salvagers buying ships Um, and um, employing
0: white and black mariners beneath them. I just want to make sure you heard that right. Former slaves were able to buy boats and hire white men to work for them. In other words, the water, as a zone where the traditional racial rules of society don't apply, goes all the way back to the early days of slavery. There's another example of this, with an even more direct connection to William Shorey's situation. European captains didn't really know how to navigate the shallow bays and estuaries of major ports in the New World. Ports like Charleston, South Carolina, for example. The Europeans were used to deeper ports, so they would constantly run their boats aground on sandbars and block all the other commerce trying to come and go. This was a very expensive problem. Slaves, on the other hand, were skillful at navigating through these shallow waters because of their experiences back in the rivers and deltas of West Africa. This was the result.
1: You know, for a hundred years, black men really dominate this, um, this profession.
0: In other words, when it came time to navigate boats through the busy ports of southern colonies and then states, it was usually men of African descent steering the ship. And this was a huge deal.
1: Slavery is saying that they're supposed to be subjugated, dishonored, disrespected, um, and treated as marginalized people. But a ship pilot, they commanded this, this knowledge that forced white people to respect them.
0: And it wasn't just respect. Professor Dawson has found stories of enslaved ship pilots who refused to do their job until the ship's captain gave them a raise or served them some whiskey. And here's what would happen if they didn't get what they wanted. They end up cursing out
1: ship captains, calling them, you know, bloody bitches, and, um, and at times even beating up ship captains and then using their shoreside connections, connections with governors in, in colonies or, or mayors of towns to escape punishment once they reached
0: shore. So even though diving for sunken treasure and pearls was profitable, being a ship pilot put a relatively small number of black men in a position to bring the economy of the new world to a screeching halt. No trade going in and out of a port would have crippled a whole region. That's why these politicians would side with slaves accused of beating white men. It's a cliche, but it's true. Just follow the money. Millions of Africans first lost their freedom on boats during the deadly trip across the Atlantic. But ironically, the sea also offered one of the few paths out of slavery. And the water wasn't just a place of liberation for slaves with rare skills. There was a lot of grunt work on ships too. One
1: thing that slaves understood is that it provided a lot of anonymity. If you could run away to the sea, You could oftentimes link up with a northern ship captain or a European ship captain who didn't really care about slavery, who needed sailors and would sign
0: that person on. And so it allowed them to escape. On these ships, the strict racial codes of the mainland were, to a certain extent, left at the docks. And many black sailors got to experience a kind of equality. They were decent-paying jobs
1: um, that tended to value people more by their skill and by their bravery than by the color of their skin. White sailors and officers recognized that you, d- you didn't want to beat somebody. You didn't want to berate somebody because, I mean, captains did beat and berate people, but they still recognized that in times of peril, you needed to rely on these people. You needed them to
0: be on your side. And once they got a taste of freedom, well... It's pretty understandable why so many of these early black sailors decided to head west.
1: The Pacific, I think, is important because slavery was, was more or less legal everywhere in the Atlantic world, and so there weren't very many places that, that slaves could go, or free black people could go. And even in societies where slavery had been outlawed, really the stigmas of slavery were still being applied to free black people.
0: After the gold rush of 1849, this trickle of African American immigrants to the West Coast became a flood. As part of the Compromise
1: of 1850, California becomes a free state. And so, because it's a free state, and then because there's this real shortage of labor in California, it provided this opportunity for free black people, um, but then also for fugitive slaves to come into California and to establish themselves. And so, early on you did have a significant number of um, black people coming into, into California, uh, mostly into the Bay Area.
0: After the break, William Shorey emerges as the number one blubber hunter in the Pacific by learning how to play a very dirty game. Stay tuned. <laughs> William Shorey was not supposed to be a whaling captain. He was born on the island of Barbados in 1859. And since he was the oldest of eight kids, his parents expected him to start working from a very young age. So they got him a job as a plumber's apprentice. He wasn't feeling the landlubber's life though. And as a teenager, he jumped on a ship bound for Boston and never looked back. On that very first voyage, the ship's captain befriended young Willie and started teaching him the art of navigation. By 1876, at the age of 17, Shori had shipped out on his first whaling expedition. If he was looking for excitement, he found plenty of it. Here's a story from one of his early hunts. Shori wrote, quote, Evidently enraged, the whale attacked first one boat, smashing it, and then a second one, and then attacked the one I was in. By good fortune, We were able to fire a bomb into him, which, exploding, killed him and saved us. So just in case that quote didn't make it obvious enough, hunting for whales was super dangerous. In 1871 alone, 68 whale ships were lost in Arctic ice. That's nearly 70 ships going down in a single year. And even if the ships didn't sink or get trapped in the ice, on average, about one out of every ten sailors on a whaling expedition died during the journey. Here's why these trips were so prone to disaster.
1: During the colonial period, whalers basically lived at home, and so they could just stay at home, and you know they'd see a whale, and they'd go out in a longboat and harpoon the whale, and then they have they begin to go farther and farther, um, and as they're decimating, like you said, the Atlantic populations are going into the Pacific. And then they begin to decimate the southern pacific um whaling whale populations and they move to the to the uh west and further and further north and so yeah it makes these longer and longer voyages that end up being several years as opposed to you know early on a few a day or a few days or um a few months and so yeah that absolutely opens up possibilities for um, For black men, because white men just don't want to be, I mean, most men don't want to be away from their families um, that long.
0: So, real quick, here's a crash course in the rise and fall of the whaling industry. Whales were hunted for a lot of things. Their bones were used to make everything from children's toys to corsets. Their teeth were carved into things like chess pieces and piano keys. There's even a substance called ambergris, which is formed in the whale's intestine that's still used to make perfume, but the most important resource was whale oil. Before fossil fuels and electricity, burning blubber was the world's main source of light. During the heyday of whaling, Massachusetts was the center of this massive industry. However, right around the time that William Shorey was born, the whale biz started going downhill for two big reasons. One, people started using petroleum oil instead of melted-down whale fat, and two, nearly all of the whales in the Atlantic had been slaughtered. As a result, the work of finding and killing whales became much more risky and difficult. Here's what life aboard one of these sailing ships was like.
1: People are working long hours, they're sleeping in short shifts, they're in really cramped quarters. Oftentimes. You know, you have people sharing beds. Um, so, you know, one person would roll out of bed, another person would get into that bed just because the ship became that cramped. Ships are not what movies make them out to be. I mean, they're, um, they stunk. Um, I mean, just water would get down into the hull of a ship. Um, this bilge water, and it's one of the, the nastiest smelling things um, that you would ever want to wanna breathe. And, yeah,
0: it's not really a, a kind of a romantic life. Living on these cramped boats with a bunch of other dudes for years at a time—that was the easy part. Here's why 19th-century whaling makes TV shows like *Deadliest Catch* look like fishing in a rowboat on a pond during a warm summer day. Everything aboard, I sir, everything in place, and lower away.
1: You'd sail around in a large ho. ship until you saw a whale ho. spout. That's and then ho. they'd lower that's the that's whale boats ho. and um, paddle after the whale. And sometimes they'd have to paddle three, four, five miles and actually lose sight of the ship. They'd, they'd have to sneak up on these whales, um, so they're paddling as quietly as possible. They'd harpoon the whale, and then the whale would tow the boat in what's known as a Nantucket sleigh ride. So the, the whale would literally just tow the boat around. Sometimes with sperm whales, they turn on on, on the, uh, the whale in boats and actually destroy them and kill men um, in the process. The whales would tow these boats around for quite a while, and as they're towing it, they're, the whale is becoming more and more tired and they begin to pull the line in until they get closer and closer to the whale. And then basically what they did is they'd take a long lance and just keep stabbing the whale, trying to puncture its lungs in order to get the whale to suffocate on, on its own blood. And so then the whale would begin to, to blow blood out of its blowhole. And so this is covering the men. Um, eventually the whales would die and then they'd have to tow the whale back to the ship um, so again, towing, you know, a several ton whale through the ocean, you know, six, 10 men would have just been backbreaking work. I would imagine, you know, for several miles, um, they would have to do that until they regained ship, um, and then tie the whale to the side of the ship, strip the skin off the whale to begin to, to then butcher it and, um, and, and take the blubber off, which is what they really were after. I mean, butchering a whale is hard Dangerous work. I mean, you're having to actually boil down the whale fat, and so fat is splattering all over people, burning them, scalding them. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's not something that, uh, it, it, is, it is dangerous work. I mean, you could see why people wouldn't want to do it.
0: There's one other reason for the collapse of New England's whaling industry. During the Civil War, the Confederate Navy sunk dozens of northern whalers. By the 1870s, when William Shorey was starting his career, the Bay Area was America's new whaling capital. Most boats were departing from San Francisco, shipyards for building the boats were popping up in Alameda, and many sailors, including William Shorey, made Oakland their home base. Until about the time of World War I, the whaling business was the largest employer of African American seamen on the West Coast. So the boats were lowered and the men aboard the whale was in full view. And high resolve were our sailors so bold for to steer where that whalefish blew, brave boys. To steer where that whalefish blew. Being a captain required a lot more than simply knowing how to sail. One contemporary account said that, quote, the whaling master was almost certain to act as physician surgeon lawyer diplomat financial agent entrepreneur taskmaster judge and peacemaker in 1886 only 10 years after his first whaling voyage Shori became the first black man on the west coast to score this high-ranking position and he wasn't just smart and strong he was also really good looking Shortly after his big promotion, the captain married Julie Ann Shelton, the beautiful daughter of one of San Francisco's wealthiest African-American families. She was really smart, too. When they honeymooned in Hawaii, she wrote reports on the local plants and animals that were published back in California. They were kind of a power couple. Once they had daughters, the newspapers would even write articles about how Shori would let his three-year-old daughter steer the ship. These were the glory years for Shori, and he really became a local celebrity. Reporters would even row out to his ship when it was coming back into the bay to get scoops about his latest adventures. One famous story is about how his ship, the Alexander, got destroyed by Arctic ice, and he broke his leg, but he still managed to save his whole crew. Yeah, I mean, he was
1: credited several times with with saving ships that people felt other
0: captains couldn't have saved. And speaking of his crew, they were apparently quite a diverse bunch. One reporter described them as a collection of, quote, rugged Northmen, yellow-skinned Chinese, brown Eskimos, and kinky-haired sailors as black as ever walked the plank. Even though America was only about one generation removed from slavery, most of the media didn't make a very big deal about the unusual circumstances of white men working for a black boss. Part of this was probably because the worst racism in California at the time was directed against Asians. There were all kinds of laws discriminating against Chinese and Japanese immigrants passed during this era. But also remember that at the time, This maritime industry that Shori was a part of was a major pillar in the Bay Area's growing economy. And a lot of people who were trying to get rich relied on the skills of captains like Shori. These ports
1: are relatively small communities. And so unlike today, I mean, people didn't operate in kind of a distinct or discrete sphere. And so the ship owners And everybody in the port recognized that ship captains, in this case, Shori, was generating substantial wealth for themselves and for the
0: community. At the beginning of this episode, I was talking about how Shori never really had any trouble with the courts, even though he was a black man accused of beating white men. The white men were sailors who worked for him, by the way. Here's why this actually makes total sense. These judges, they
1: undoubtedly had ties to maritime trade. They might have had family members who were in the shipping industry. They might have owned shares in shipping companies. I would suspect that they were, had deep ties with the shipping industry, Um, you know, that they were friends with these ship owners and with the uh, kind of the higher ups in these shipping companies. And so they would have understood, I think, the dangers of setting this kind of precedent um and even if they weren't really concerned about setting the precedent they probably or they they could have been worried that you know okay if we punish Shori if we take him off of the i mean a punishment that would entail taking him off of this ship what are the economic consequences of that how might those kind of ripple out and
0: negatively impact me <sighs> okay the system is corrupt and it always has been big shocker right well Here's where we get into one of the sad ironies of life as a seaman. On the one hand, as was the case with fugitive slaves or anyone else trying to escape from a terrible situation, working on a ship could provide a ticket to freedom. On the other hand, people working on boats are often exploited ruthlessly. When I talked to Professor Dawson, he spent a long time telling me all the different ways that captains were able to scam broke-ass sailors out of their wages. Here are just a few examples.
1: They could issue fines against them or charge them with crimes, um, real or imagined, or even beat them to the point where they tried to get them to jump ship so that they didn't pay them at all. Um, or paid them just for uh, a small portion of the of the journey, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I mean there were a number of ways of, of duping men out of their out of their money.
0: The worst example of this kind of exploitation is a practice called shanghaiing. This was basically kidnapping people and forcing them to work on ships, often for several years. Although unlike with straight up slavery. These workers usually did receive wages at the end of their ordeals. And there's plenty of historical evidence that Captain Shorey used Shanghai sailors. A lot of them. Here's the crazy thing. It wasn't even illegal. San Francisco didn't pass a law making Shanghai a crime until 1915. Why did it take so long? Because the Bay Area economy depended on it.
1: I think this form of unfree labor was common enough that, you know, people didn't want to be subjected to it themselves. And many people were opposed to it, obviously. But at the same time, I think people were willing to
0: turn kind of a blind eye. And it wasn't just the ship owners and captains who supported this. Regular sailors who wanted to work couldn't ship out until the captain had a full crew. It would be a deadly mistake to set out for a whaling voyage shorthanded. The entire system from top to bottom, relied on, well, as Professor Dawson put it, unfree labor. And yeah, this sounds outrageous to us now, but have things really changed that much? Maybe an analogy would be,
1: you know, we're, we're all opposed to slavery in these forms of, you know, kind of exploitive labor, and yet we're willing to turn a blind eye when we buy clothing that was made you know, in in kind of in these same shady ways or cell phones or... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like
0: Americans know that factories in Bangladesh are like burning down and that people are like chained inside these places or, you know, that they have suicide nets up outside the Apple factories and, and the Foxconn, you know, headquarters or whatever. And it's like uh, people don't want to hear about it, you know, but we are complicit in that exploitation of labor, whether or not we want to admit it or to what degree we want to... Yeah. You know, grapple with that. Okay, I think you get it. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that sweatshops are the same thing as slavery. I'm just saying it doesn't really look like freedom either. Oh, and by the way, in the past several years, there have been several investigative reports that actual human slaves are being forced to catch and process seafood, and that much of that seafood ended up on the shelves of stores like Walmart. Albertsons and Safeway. In 1907, Captain Shori was heading back from a whaling trip off the coast of northern Japan, When he got caught up in a massive typhoon. Here's how one of the crewmen described it. For 30 long hours the tempest lasted, during which no one ate or slept. The boats were smashed, the sails were lost, and large waves swept over the decks. On the same trip, they almost crashed on rocks while traveling through a fog, and the crew later testified that, quote, nothing but Captain Shorey's coolness and clever seamanship Saved a wreck. Maybe this near disaster shook his nerves because the next year he retired from whaling. The whole industry was dying anyway, so it was a good time to walk away. Shorey continued to do some work as a special agent at the Oakland docks, but the later years of his life were mainly devoted to his family and his community. He was an active member of the Episcopalian church. He helped organize Oakland's first group of black business owners. And he even hosted a dinner at his west oakland home for booker t washington in fact if you want to go see that house a victorian built in 1875 it's over near the corner of eighth and pine it's officially a historic landmark but people live there and each of the four units is named after a different ship that shorey captained you can also see his cane which is shaped like a fist at the oakland museum and you can also see his tombstone at the Mountain View Cemetery. Captain William Shorey died in 1919 at the age of 60, one of the many millions killed by the Spanish flu epidemic. There's one other interesting little footnote to the story. Jack London was partially raised by a black family, the Prentice family, when he was a small boy. Apparently the father of this family, Alonzo Prentice, was friends with Shorey, and introduced the young Jack Lennon to the famous whaling captain. According to the local historian, Mary Rudge, Jack loved listening to tales of Captain Shorey's adventures. And later, when he became a newspaper boy, Jack would retell Shorey's tales in order to sell more papers. As a teenager, Jack Lennon famously ran away to the sea. And when he returned, the very first story he ever published was about surviving a typhoon off the coast of Japan. Sound familiar? On the surface, it seems possible that William Shorey was a pretty big influence on one of the most successful writers in American history. But who knows? History is rarely as simple as it first appears. I have so many people to thank for this episode, so here we go. Annalee Allen, Steve Lavoie, Beren Talati, Gina Bardi, Peter Kaysen, Carol Kaiser, Betty Marvin, Anna Bunting, Nick Rahame, Timothy Lynch, and Kevin Dawson. Thank you all. Also, the San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park. If you like this story, you should totally go check that place out. Lots of cool old ships. I read a bunch of books and journals and articles in order to write the story, and I'll post the full list of research materials on the East Bay Yesterday Facebook page. And speaking of social media, please follow East Bay Yesterday on all your favorite networks and spread the word. I don't do much self-promotion, so it really, really helps when you, yes you, tell other people to check out this show. As always. Props to everybody who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. Music for this episode came from Costa T, Kathy Adelson, V. Wickham, and this crazy old record I found in the dollar bin at Rasputin's called Songs of Yankee Wailing." That album was recorded by Bill Banyan and Stephen Merrill. The theme song came from Anatech. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice or at eastbayyesterday at gmail.com. One more thing. I spent months working on this episode, and you know
1: what? I'm thirsty. I sure would, could go for, you know, some whiskey or a dram of, of,
0: um, uh, 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 of, of alcohol. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. See you next week.